everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to a new series on Matan's one-on-one podcast. Starting from last week, Parshat Shmot, we will be sitting down with a, for a weekly 30-minute episode on the Parsha. Each week has a twist. Each episode aims to highlight a figure, whether ancient, pre-modern, contemporary, who shares an idea on the Parsha. Each week I'll be sitting down with a new guest for a short conversation about a figure and an idea they are passionate about. This week I'm sitting down with Dr. Ayelet Hoffman Lipson, who's here to speak about the figure of Moshe Rabbeinu himself. Uh, and we'll be speaking about a fascinating idea that Ayelet has regarding the development of Moshe and his character. And uh, I'm thrilled to be here with you, Ayelet. I'm glad to be here too. Thanks, Yosefa. So take it away. I want to start from thinking about what is the most common pasuk in the Torah, in all of the Torah. And without actually having checked this very, very precisely, I would guess that the most common pasuk in the Torah is Vaydaber Hashem el Moshe, right? God spoke to Moshe, and probably the second most common pasuk is Vaydaber Moshe el Bnei Yisrael lemor. God, um, Moshe spoke to Bnei Yisrael, saying, relaying whatever God had said to him. Um, and that's really what I want to focus on, on the, on the gap between those two psukim. Is, why is the Torah telling us first what Hashem said to Moshe, and then what Moshe said to Bnei Yisrael, right? It seems like, you know, the Torah should be, um, should be limiting itself and saying as least as possible, as we always know, that there's always meaning to every word that the Torah says. And therefore, if the Torah is always repeating what Moshe received from God and then relayed to Bnei Israel, then there has to be meaning in that. Um, and I think that in order to understand this, then we need to really focus on the character of Moshe and how he's actually a part of giving the Torah, right? It's not, he's not just a vehicle. He's not just this empty pipe through which... It's not a copy machine. Right. It's not just something that, you know, God can't speak directly to Bnei Israel, and therefore he needs Moshe in order to be his microphone or his loudspeaker. Um, But rather, Moshe is actually contributing in some way to, to the giving of the Torah. And the question is, in what way? So I think that when we look at last week's parasha, parashat Shmot, then we can see that um, there's basically all of the first chapters of the parasha and the first chapters of the book are describing to us the origins of Moshe. And I think that as we see with other characters like Yaakov or Yosef, when we hear about the beginning of a person's life, then that is indicating to us that there's a certain theme that's going to be important for this person's life as a whole in the Torah. And um, in, so in order to understand what is Moshe's theme, what's his, what's his main character trait? Why was he chosen? What is his nevuah that he is passing on to, to Bnei Yisrael? Um, we need to really look at these first chapters in Parashat Shmot and understand what are the themes that are coming up there. So what is the main theme? Uh, I think that when we look at this, uh, at Parashat Shmot, we can see that 
a central theme that is coming up is actually disobedience. Surprisingly, right? If, you know, to say that Moshe and disobedience go together, we'll have to see what that means. But certainly the theme that's coming up in Parashat Shmot is disobedience. And where do we see that? First of all, we see that Paro decrees that all of the children of, uh, of Israel should be should should be thrown into the Yeor, or f- even before that, that they should be um, that they shouldn't be allowed to live. Right? He says to the midwives, "Kora ben ayelod." Sorry, he says to the he says to the midwives, "You should kill the, these children as they are born." Basically, so first of all, we have the midwives who are disobe- disobeying this decree that they're not willing to do that, and obviously the Torah looks favorably on upon their refusal and says that you know God made a team for them, yeah. right? Um, and then we have the decree of Kora ben Ayelod Tashlichu, right? That that all of the newborn children should be thrown into the River Nile, um, and there too. The Torah focuses on the disobedience. It doesn't tell us about, you know, like all the people were throwing their children into the Nile, but it focuses specifically on the one couple who is not doing that, mm-hmm. right? Who is um, uh, Moshe's parents. And the Midrash even emphasizes that, that when it says, Vayelech Ishmi Beit Levi, that the word Vayelech actually indicates that it was going to get married with the intention of perpetuating the next generation um, and refusing to accept the decree of Paro. So that's our second disobedience. Then our third disobedience is Bat Paro, right? Moshe gets put in the Teva, he's, he's sent on t- in, um, in the river, and he would have been lost, despite the fact that Miriam is watching over him, he would have been lost were it not for Bat Paro's disobedience. So here we have a third instance of disobedience that obviously Bat Paro knows her father's decree, and yet she decides, you know, she feels uh, the clarity of the moral voice, her conscience within her, and she refuses to... Um, to to go along with her father's decree, and she takes this child out of the water and adopts it um, as her own, and even brings in the meineket to to take care of him. So that's uh, another point of of disobedience. And then we start hearing about Moshe. So all of those. Wait, points- no, before you get to Moshe, mm-hmm. I'll just interrupt for a moment. Mm-hmm. That there's there's two pieces that come up. First of all, um, we can't ignore the fact that these are all females. Um, and of course we have the Midrashic tradition, but I just want to say as a soundbite, which is that the main message of the end of Perak Aleph and the first 10 Psukim, which you're referencing without referencing them in the beginning of Perak Bet, you really have here this idea of that in that moment of crisis, it's the women who will perpetuate, meaning it's the women who have their moral conscious specifically regarding the children that they are going to have and save and perpetuate. That is what saves Am Yisrael. And then Moshe comes in, meaning they, they work to then bring Moshe the savior, but the women are the crux of it, which is, of course, what the Midrash expresses when it talks about the righteous women of the, of the generation in Egypt, which includes Bat Paro, meaning of the list you've just, ex- you've just described, Bat Paro is by far the most surprising, meaning the Mieldot, the midwives, whether they were Israelite midwives or Egyptian midwives, that definitely is surprising, but it's also their job to work with children. So you understand a little bit their moral conscious in that setting. 
But Batpro is by far the most shocking in those first 10 psukim, meaning we understand why a mother and a sister would try and save their son and brother, but Batpro is really, I think, the striking heroine of, of those first psukim. Absolutely. And I think that that's really pointing out to us, you know, first of all, it's pointing out to us how evil the decree was, right? Yeah. That, that even, even his the own daughter, daughter of, the, of the king will refuse to, yeah. to perform it. But, you know, the assumption is that there were many other people who were going along. So, you know, the fact that Moshe is adopted by Bat Paro, this very strong woman with a very strong conscience, I think is not, you know, that's also indicating to us that that was part of his upbringing, right? The Torah doesn't go into these details, but if you're brought up by a woman like that, then you can assume that wherever you're, you're walking along with your three-year-old or your five-year-old, and wherever you see injustice, you're pointing that out. Right, and that leads us right into the second part of, of the chapter. Is exactly. where you have Moshe justice seeking at every corner. Right. So then Moshe grows up and he really does emulate his uh, his adoptive mother, right? That he uh, he goes out and he sees uh, an Egyptian man um, beating a, a Hebrew man um, and he can't stand idly by, right? It's clear to him. It's not, it's, I don't think it's even clear in the Torah that this is about his identity as a, as a Hebrew. Um, it's more just that he can't stand by when this injustice is being done, um, and so he strikes the he strikes the Egyptian, um, and then he you know the the next day uh, he goes and he sees two uh, Hebrew people fighting with one another, and again he wants to intervene, he wants to do justice, right? But then he understands from their response that it's become known that he's killed the Egyptian and therefore he has to flee, which I think is also, you know, right? the fact that he has to flee to Midian and he becomes an outsider is also a part of his moral development um, in this story. And then we hear how he reaches Midian. I'll just develop that with one more sentence, which is that when he names his son after being Ger Haiti Beres and that's the midrash. That's the name explanation that is gives him in the psukim that he's an outsider. So we, we have this question: Where is he an outsider? As a as an exegetical question, is it in Midian? Is it in Mitzrayim? Uh, and I think they're both they're both correct on a certain level. But what you're pointing out is also that part of what Moshe needed to be able to identify, meaning if he would have only been that you know rich. Uh, indulged young man, he would be very difficult to relate to, Tom Israel. But part of the process of being able to be a relatable leader is that he has to be the other in a society, just like they are the other in the society. And so that is a, it needs, it becomes a meeting point between them to a certain degree. Exactly. And, and when you're an outsider, then, you know, some people perhaps respond to being an outsider by, you know, conforming, just trying to be like everyone else, you know, not sticking out. Um, but in the story, when uh, when Moshe first comes to Midian, we see that that's not how Moshe responds, right? Because he again he comes to the well and he sees that the shepherds are you know being unkind to the daughters of Itro, and he immediately confronts them. And that's the first thing that the daughters, when the daughters come back to Itro, and Itro says, hey, hey, you came back so early today, what happened? That's the first thing that they're relating about Moshe, right? That he was the one who stood up for us. Um, so he's, again, being represented as someone who, you know, 
on the one hand, can't stand by and see injustice, but he's also not adhering to the rules of the place, right? There's, I think you, we can assume that at that well, there was a certain procedure that caused the daughters to come home at a certain time every day. You know, the shepherds would come, they would kick these women aside, and uh, they would take whatever they wanted from the water, take their time. Um, and now Moshe is coming and disrupting these rules. He's, he's someone who comes and changes the status quo. And in that way, also, it's also very much harks back to what he experienced as a child. I mean, you can imagine that his the people who raised him also challenged the status quo, meaning you're speaking about it as disobeying or breaking the rule. I think it's, it's part of the same package, right? Of saying, yeah, just because this is what everybody's doing doesn't mean I'm going to play along with it. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we come to our parasha, uh, in Parashat Va'era, and this is also something that already starts in the last parasha, but really comes to a head or culminates in Parashat Va'era, then I think we see this tendency of Moshe towards challenging the status quo, towards breaking the rules. We see that coming to a head not only in his relationships with society, with other people, um, with, you know, whether it's in Mitzrayim or whether it's in Midian, but that same tendency, that same relationship uh, replicates itself not only with humans, but with God himself. Um, and we see this in the way that God and Moshe argue about what is the right way to go about redeeming Bnei Israel from Mitzrayim. Uh, and this is something that starts already at the encounter at the burning bush. God says to Moshe at the encounter at the Sne, he says to him, V'ata lecha v'ashalachacha el paro v'hotza et ami v'nei Yisrael mimitzrayim. So Hashem says to Moshe, go to paro, right? And tell them, take out the people of Israel from Mitzrayim. And we see that repeating throughout the next few chapters. Every time that God speaks to Moshe, he's telling him to go to Paro. So this is a very top-down model of redemption, right? It's We have millions of people, according to the assessment uh, that the Torah gives, of how many people were in Mitzrayim. Um, and nobody's at, God is assuming that they want to be delivered. So the main problem, the main obstacle is Paro. Moshe has a different perspective, however. Moshe says, a couple of verses later, already at the Sneh, he says, Vayomer Moshe el Elohim, hine anuchi va el bnei Yisrael. Right? So he says, my first shlichut is to go to Bnei Israel, right? So he says, okay, what will, what will I say to them? They're going to ask me who sent you. But it's clear that that's the focus that Moshe is focused on is, you know, okay, I understand there's this obstacle of Paro, but 
in order to redeem Bnei Israel out of Mitzrayim, then we need to, Bnei Israel need to want to leave. I'm going to have to convince Bnei Israel. With him. They need to want to leave with him also. Right, I mean, absolutely. It's a two-pronged right. issue. They have, to, they have to want to leave and get out of the status quo, and they want to have him, they need to have him as their leader. Right, so he also, the whole idea of the otot and you know having the self-confidence for Moshe also is, is an issue we see in these in these uh, psukim um, so that's that's a very very different model that we see going on that Moshe that God is very focused on the top-down model of redemption and um, and and Moshe is very focused on the bottom-up that he wants first to his shlichut to be to Bnei Israel to convince them that they do want to leave. And then he thinks, you know, the problems will paro, with Paro will be resolved of themselves, which I think is also, you know, if we think about it practically, then that's certainly possible, right? If, if a huge people of slaves decide that they're leaving, they're having an uprising, these are things that we can recognize that can actually happen. And the issue is to change that mentality. You know, often uh, Parshanim speak about changing the, the slave mentality into a freeborn mentality. So that's really what, um, what Moshe is more, is more focused on. Um, and so, you know, I think that throughout the end of last week's parasha and the beginning of this week's parasha, Moshe and and Hashem are going back and forth on this question. We can see several psukim, at least three or four instances each, where Hashem says to Moshe, go to Paro, and Moshe says, I'm going to Bnei Yisrael. Okay? And eventually, we find um, a kind of a, a compromise, I think, that, you know, that actually Hashem gives in. Okay? That in Perek Vav, um, psukim Yud, to Yud Gimel, we have this very instance of the Pasuk that I started with. Adonai el Moshe le'mor. God spoke to Moshe. Bo daber el paro melech Mitzrayim, v'yishalach et bnei Yisrael me'artso. Right? So he's, God says, go to paro, and then he will send bnei Yisrael from his country. V'yidaber Moshe lifnei Adonai le'mor. So again, Moshe is focused on Bnei Israel. They didn't listen to me, so how will Paro listen to me? But then in Pasuk Yud Gimel, So Hashem realizes, okay, you know, I need Moshe in order to take Bnei Israel out of Mitzrayim. This is how he wants to do it. So, yes, we're going to have to go both to Bnei Israel and to Paro. And he's adding Aaron in order to make Moshe feel more confident. Meaning there's, there's those two aspects that I'm going to, I'm going to answer Moshe's issue, which is that I, I don't think I could do this alone. I'll give you Aaron. And then, and then he's going to have that two pronged approach. It's not just top down, but I have to get bottom up and top down. Right. So it's, you know, there's two methods and we're going to have a, an extra boost of support for the leader. Yeah. Uh, in order to be able to pursue those those two prongs of the of the geula, yeah. So so we see here. I think that that's you know it's very. We don't usually th- think about Hashem as a personality, but I think that when we focus on Moshe and Moshe's development 
um, then that also draws attention to how much of a partnership there is here between Hashem and Moshe. It's not only a hierarchy that, you know, it could have been anyone, right? It could have been anyone. It's just a matter of Hashem says to this person, go to Parol, take out Bnei Israel, and then it's just a question of to what extent is Hashem hardening the heart of Parol or not. No, the Torah is making it clear that Moshe is actually a part of this process, and that's why it was so focused, so important to focus in earlier chapters on his moral development and his upbringing, because only a person who had gone through all these stages could be ready for the task that Hashem is giving him now. Right, you're also saying that Moshe, his job isn't to be an agent of God, he's actually partnering with God in this process, and therefore because he's a partner with God, which I know sounds sort of theologically chutzpahdik, but I will see how far we get. There are so many examples, and I even can go back and give an interesting example in the previous parak. but he's partnering with God, and he, as a partner, he also has a certain amount of sway, meaning God has a certain plan, but it doesn't mean that that's ultimately going to be what gets put into play in this world. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think one of the interesting questions that comes out of this, of what you're saying, is, is the Torah telling us that Moshe was entirely unique, and only because he went through these stations in his moral development, and he had, you know, this very, very specific background that's hard to imagine, all these challenges and being brought up by Bat Paro, So he was the only person who could possibly have this kind of relationship with Hashem, and therefore it's something entirely unique, in which case it's telling us something about how the Torah was given that's very important for us to know. Or another possibility is that the Torah is also telling us something about our religious development, right? That that in a way, we, we none of us can be Moshe. Moshe was in a very unique situation, but it's telling us something about um, about how it wants us, what kind of relationship the Torah wants us to develop with God, right? That it wants us to aspire to bring our full selves. Um, it wants us to be aware of injustice, and it wants us to be in dialogue with with God in the way that Moshe was. Look, I think what you're saying is unique to Moshe in its scope, and I would want to ask you also for other examples where we see this happening in Moshe's life. But certainly, you know, we see we see an attempt to do this by Abraham when it came when it comes to Stom. Uh, we see an attempt to change God's mind, even though there it doesn't succeed. But the the assumption of all these great leaders is that their job isn't just to be an agent. It's to be, it's to bring God's will into the world, but it also means that sometimes they're going to change God's original plan. With Moshe, obviously with the longest ending career that we know the most about, we have more examples of it. But I would say that this idea, you know, that God is brought into the world by man and that, that manifestation is different depending on who is the emissary of God is something we see from a lot of leaders in, in Tanakh. And as we said before, I mean, so many of the Nevi'im, you know, had either they objected to what God said or they tried their best or, or they themselves also made changes. And so it sounds really, um, it sounds really unusual, but it actually exists in many, in many, many places. And you certainly see it all over Sefer Breshit as well before we get to Moshe. But where are other examples that we see that in the life of Moshe where God tells him one thing and actually he ends up doing something a little bit different or we see him quote unquote changing God's mind? Okay, so, so we'll see that very soon already, you know, small instances, for example, with the uh, Makot, um, where, uh, M- Moshe, for example, is the one who introduces the idea 
of um, going for three days out of Mitzrayim in order to bring uh, korbanot and zvachim to, to Hashem. This is an idea that uh, Moshe initiates. It's not something that he was told by Hashem to do. Or, for example, makat barad, the, the makav hail. Um, Moshe is the one who announces of his own initiative it's going to end when he leaves the city. Uh, so that it, again, that is, isn't something that Hashem told him to do. So we see Moshe intervening in, you know, certain details, I would say. Um, or we see that, for example, when we talk about Pesach, specifically the tzivui for Pesach ledorot, what will be for all generations for Pesach. So the mitzvot that Hashem give are hashbatat chametz, that there should be no chametz in the home, and eating matzah. But the idea of shchitat pesach that there's a korban Pesach for all generations, that's an innovation of Moshe's. So he takes an idea that was relevant in Pesach Mitzrayim and he extends it to Pesach Dorot. I would say, by the way, that the average reader would assume that God told Moshe, meaning if you read it, Many of us would miss this idea because we would assume, oh, of course God told Moshe, but we only hear about it when Moshe said it. But what I yelled, I think, if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that, no, we should read it that Moshe actually had his own ideas, and they're part of the of the creativity and uniqueness of what ultimately becomes Torah Hashem. But the but the um, the idea of Hachodesh Zelachem that we have our active role in Rashi Chodashim and all these other elements, you're saying that already Moshe is a dugma of that, that that is happening all over the place. Absolutely, yeah. It's certainly, I think, it creates more of a continu- continuity between the biblical world and the world of Chazal than we're used to thinking of, right? Because we always think in the world of Chazal, there is no more divine revelation and therefore their human activity is much more central. But it's actually Chazal are building on something that's very present in the Torah. And that's why going back to where I started from, I think it's so important to focus on those psukim of Vaydaber Hashem al Moshe, Vaydaber Moshe al Bnei Israel, right? That there's, there's a little gap there and we mm-hmm. need to, we, have, we need to very, very carefully compare exactly what Hashem is saying to Moshe and what Moshe is relaying to Bnei Israel. And that's true not only in Parashat Va'era, that's true in throughout the entirety of the Torah. Um, obviously, I just want to mention two two more points. Obviously, the most radical example of this is when Moshe comes down from the mount from the mountain and sees Am Yisrael engaged in worshiping Egel Hazav, and he, of his own initiative, takes the tablets the tablets that were written by God Himself, and you know throws them to the ground. And that's a very very visual image of Moshe's initiative to the point even of breaking the Torah that Hashem gave him. So we think always of Moshe as the giver of the law. And here we have, you know, these themes of disobedience and challenging the status quo coming to a head when Moshe becomes the breaker of the law. Um, Literally. Literally, yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's, I think, a very, very strong image. And, you know, I think... The fact that in the in the midrash, uh, I think it's Rabbi Yochanan, if I'm not mistaken, who says Yishal Kochachashibalta, right? That God said Yishal Koach for breaking the the tablets. I think that's also reflecting a certain kind of anxiety that the Chachamim had when they read these psukim. That they said, how could Moshe possibly do something like this? 
But when we read Moshe's actions in light of the relationship that he and Hashem have built throughout the Torah, then we understand that, yes, there is a certain amount of autonomy and initiative that's granted to Moshe, and Hashem relies on him. And that's, therefore, you can say, On the other hand, we also know that Moshe's life ends in a certain amount of tragedy. Um, and he was not able to go into Eretz Yisrael because of overstepping those yeah. bounds, those yeah. same bounds, right? He, God told him to, um, God told him to speak to the rock and Moshe didn't listen. Moshe hit the rock. So again, we have this gap, right? God says to do one thing, but Moshe does something else. But here, it's one step too much. Here, it ends in tragedy, and Hashem sees it as overstepping the bounds. So if we go back to, you know, is Moshe a model for all of us? I think that that last story is also a kind of a warning, right? That, yes, we can, you know, challenge the status quo. And yes, God expects us to always be looking out for injustice and challenging it. um, But... At the same time, also preserving uh, obedience to Hashem. So it's a very, very fine line to walk and to know, you know, when's when exactly is the right thing to do. Right, you're, it's sent, you, this idea is sending me in a few directions. Meaning, first of all, I think again, when people get to that story, they sort of think, "Wow, God was really harsh with Moshe. He, he only didn't listen to this one small fact." And your idea is saying, "No, no, no. Look back at all of Moshe's history. This is not the one time that Moshe didn't do exactly what God told him to do. It actually was a lifetime of that. And most of the time, it worked out. It worked out in his benefit. Hashem agreed with what he with what he did." But, but in the end, God is saying to Moshe, there's actually a price to this cooperative slash, it's also still hierarchical, hierarchical relationship between us. And here, here's where, where it ends. Um, but my question, and this is to end the, the episode for today, my question is sort of, I hear already people responding and saying, okay, well, we're not all Moshe. So how am I supposed to look at that? Meaning it's a nice idea, but how am I supposed to look at that as, an idea that is something that could be played out. Are we only talking about challenging status quos in social justice realms? Are we talking about challenging status quos in legal realms? Um, because that is sort of where the underlying a lot of this is heading as well. And so I sort of, it's a huge question to throw out at the end, but I'm just curious what thoughts you have on that and where you would see this beautiful idea, which by the way, I would say from a totally biblical perspective is all over. Meaning Safer Brace Sheet aims towards this place of putting man in control and not God. God not appearing in the story of Yosef is a very powerful, um, very powerful piece ending Safer Brace Sheet. Uh, in so many places we see God putting the ropes in the hands of man. And this is a powerful expression of that. But I'm curious where, in what direction you would see this ins- inspiration sort of weaving at, at this point. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think it's not only individual stories in the Tanakh, like you're describing. I think, actually, this is the trajectory of the Tanakh as a whole, right? If we think about the beginning point of Bereshit, where God is speaking directly to Adam and Chava, uh, and we think about the end point of the Tanakh historically, right, which are the books of Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah, then these are books where Hashem is much, much, much less present. In fact, in the book of Estel, he's not present at all. And that vacuum, I think, is intentional because Hashem is giving humanity the message, you have to step up to the plate now. You have to come to the fore. You have to take responsibility for the world. 
Um, and so I think that it's not coincidence that the character of Moshe throughout his life, throughout the books of the Torah, is expressing this same idea. I think that that's really one of the core messages of the Torah, that on the one hand, religious life requires obedience, and it requires acceptance of it requires acceptance of the framework of the law, um, but but that the Torah is constantly pushing against the idea that this requires shutting off a part of yourself or becoming, you know, just this blind follower. That is not what the Torah wants. The Torah wants to create this framework in order to develop moral people. And therefore, if something creates injustice, then the Torah is also demanding of us to always be with our eyes open um, and to always push back and to always be in dialogue with God, however difficult that is. Um, and therefore, that's really what Moshe epitomizes in his life. Wow. Thank you so much for that, Ayala. I just want to end with two points. One is that there's a fascinating article that Tanya and I actually spoke about in our episodes on suffering from a Jewish perspective written by Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. And it's an article called The Third Covenant. And it's all about how in the modern era post the Holocaust, how he calls for this partnership with God in what you're saying in an even more sort of radical way. Anyone who that speaks to also, uh, Heschel writes about this very often as well. Um, so I, I'll put some of those in the show notes. And I also want to uh, take a moment of self-promotion, which is a few weeks ago we put up an episode where Yael, where Dr. Yael Ziegler and I spoke about uh, a character sketch of Moshe Rabbeinu. And I think that if someone hasn't heard that episode, it could be a great compliment to the one this morning. Uh, there we go really deep into Perik Bet uh, of Sefer Shpot in the second chapter and beyond. But uh, it's also for me moving because I love that I got to have a conversation a while back and this conversation is in a totally different direction and that, you know, we see, you know, a related text and, and two totally different ways of looking at it. So thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Today. And I look forward to listening to that episode as well. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.